Romans chapter 6. We are going to turn our attention this morning to this chapter. And so we're going to read the first four verses, and then we will dive in. Paul writes, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Let's pray. Lord, we now come to this time where we sit ourselves under your word, and we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would open our eyes to behold wondrous things from your law. Father, I need your help, that you would guide my thoughts and my words. Father, ultimately, it is a work of the Spirit as he applies the word to the heart, so I pray that you would work through my inabilities and my weaknesses in spite of those things, minister to your people this morning. Where else, where else can we go, Lord, than you? For you have the words of eternal life. And so help us, we pray, in Jesus' name, amen. In chapter five, we, Pastor Jess premised it, it's a chapter of assurance. All right, we've seen this wonderful assurance that Christians can have because we've been united to Christ. Through faith in Jesus Christ, we've been brought into a relationship of peace, right? That's Romans 5.1. There's peace with God, and ultimately there's a hope, a confident expectation of future good. And this comes to us in spite of the problem of sin, right? That's what we saw, especially in the second half of Romans chapter 5. The problem of sin is not merely Adam's sin, that Adam sinned, but that in Adam we all sinned. And we are all represented by him. And so this sin problem runs throughout the whole human race. But in spite of that, we are shown extravagant love and grace. Romans 5, 8, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Or Romans 5, 19, by the one man's obedience, Christ's obedience, the many will be made righteous. What is that other than grace? Ten times in Romans 5, chapter, verse 12 through 21, the phrase, the free gift, grace, or the abundance of grace is used, right? So Paul is really trying to communicate an idea, explaining to us what it is that we have been given in Christ and what we have been shown. We've received the free gift of salvation. It is a gift of grace. And what Paul wants us to understand is it is a gift of abundant grace, superabounding grace. And so it's so great that in verse 20 of chapter 5, it leads Paul to say that where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Where sin increased, grace superabounded is what he is saying. It's almost, you couldn't really do this, but if you could quantify your sin, one cup of sin, to grace, 10,000 gallons of grace, It would swamp it. That's how great the grace of God is towards sinners. The point is, no matter how far we go down, how far we are in our sin, 
The grace of God can reach us. We read earlier from Psalm 40, right, where the psalmist is saying, my iniquities are piled over my head. I cannot see. That's not too far for the grace of God. The grace of God washes away our sin in a deluge of grace. And even the the history of the nation of Israel pictures this, right? If you've read your Old Testament, you would see this. The nation of Israel got to a really bad place steeped in idolatry so much so that they're under a sentence of judgment where they're carried away and yet the Lord continues to promise grace to them and to promise to do future good. So this is the kind of grace that sets us up for chapter six, an extravagant, abundant grace. Now when we enter chapter six, we're really entering a new unit in the book of Romans. We need to see that Romans six, seven, and eight all belong together. They're a unit. And I think that Romans 6, 7, and 8 are probably the chapters that most Christians who are familiar with the book of Romans with would identify with and love, right? We go to Romans 6, 7, and 8 first. These chapters deal with our sin, our relation to it, our relationship to it, and the ongoing battle with it. But they're foundational in understanding how the Christian life is to be lived and how we deal with this sin that still so easily besets us. So you can summarize the chapters in this way. So I'm gonna quickly do that for you. Summarize chapters six, seven, and eight. And I might summarize it this way. Pastor Jess might summarize it a different way next week. So uh, that's the, the beauty of different preachers is that sometimes you see things just a little bit different. But Romans chapter six, I would entitle it this way, consider your new relationship to sin. If you look at verse 11, you'd see this. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. There's a new way of thinking that we are to adopt about our relationship to sin. Chapter seven would be the ongoing battle with sin in the flesh. Look at verses 22 through 24. This is a chapter, again, that Christians, we can identify with. We we know what Paul is talking about. We feel it. Verse 22, for I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? So in chapter seven, the ongoing battle with sin in the flesh. And then in chapter eight, it's a wonderful chapter where we learn that the spirit helps us, right? Here's some hope. Not that there's not hope throughout chapter six and seven as there is, as we will see today. But Romans eight, verse one, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Or how about verse 13, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Or how about this wonderful assurance in verse 31, that God is for us. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? So you have this progression where we need to change our way of thinking about sin in chapter six. We recognize this ongoing battle in chapter seven. And this assurance that you have the Spirit of God indwelling you in chapter 8. Now, if you turn to chapter 6, today we're going to look at just the first four verses of this chapter. But I do, again, want to just kind of quickly summarize what is going on in verses 1 through 14. Because that really is a unit. 
1 through 14 is a unit, and then 15 through 23 is a unit, okay? So in verses 1 through 4, this is what we're going to uh, discuss this morning, but Paul is instructing us to change our thinking about our relationship to sin. We have died to it, and we've been raised to new life. In verses 5 through 11, we need to change our thinking about sin's control over our lives. Here he's saying, you've been set free from the power of sin. You do not have to obey it, right? But oftentimes we feel that element sometimes. I have to give in to sin. And Paul's saying, no, you don't. If verses one through four are true, then you need to recognize you're not under this dominion. So that leads to verses 12 through 14, where he's simply saying, because these other things are true, don't continue to give yourself over to it right? Change your actions, change your behavior, and you're doing it from a place where you have the Spirit of God indwelling you. You've been raised to Christ. So in verses 12 through 14, he's saying, don't continue to give yourself to sin like nothing has happened to you, like you're still dead in your sin. And what Paul is doing in Romans chapter 6 is he's helping us to understand what sanctification is, Right, the process of being made more like Christ. I believe it was when Pastor Jess began in Romans chapter five, maybe you'll remember this, he read a quote from Martin Luther. Does anybody remember that? About the relationship of good works and in the presentation of the gospel. How do we think about grace and works? And the short of the quote, I don't have it, was this, that in salvation... In the presentation of the gospel, works have nothing to do with it. It is a gospel of grace, completely of grace. It's entirely free. And as we talked about, it's an abundant grace. So when you proclaim the gospel, there's nothing for the person to do other than just simply receive this gift of grace. Now, as he moves into chapter 6, he takes this discussion of justification in chapter 5, where you have Christ's perfect obedience and righteousness imputed to you, counted to your account. And what he's going to do is he's going to assert that our justification is the grounds and even the guarantee of our, of our sanctification. Our justification is the grounds and even the guarantee that we will be made more like Christ. And so we need to understand that there is a difference between justification and and sanctification, and yet these two are connected, if I could put it that way. The Westminster Catechism, the larger one, asks this question, wherein do justification and sanctification differ? Although, and this is the answer, although sanctification be inseparably joined with justification, yet they differ. In that, God in justification imputeth the righteousness of Christ. When you're justified, you're given all of Christ's righteousness. That's imputed. In sanctification, his spirit infuseth grace and enableth to the exercise thereof. You live from this place of grace. In the former, which is justification, sin is pardoned. In the other, sanctification, it is subdued. The one, justification, doth equally free all believers from the revenging wrath of God and that perfectly in this life that they never fall into condemnation. That's what we read in Romans chapter 8 and verse 1. 
The other, sanctification, is neither equal in all nor in this life perfect in any way, but growing up to perfection. Do you see the difference between justification and sanctification? Right? There is this, this element where, where they are connected and that out of justification will flow sanctification. And we are completely and totally justified in Christ. That's what it says, that it is perfect pardon of sin and we are freed from the avenging wrath of God. But sanctification, this ongoing work of the Spirit of God, is a continual process throughout our entire lives. And so in Romans 6 and beyond, we will see how sin becomes subdued. How does sin become subdued in our life as we are ever progressing towards glory? We'll never attain perfection in this life, but we will reach glory, and there we will be perfectly sanctified. So let's look at verse 1. Paul says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Now, Paul here is asking a question for a supposed person. Somebody may ask a question like this. And this comes on the heels. This really follows from verse 20, as he discuss, in verse 20 in chapter 5, as he discusses this super abundance of grace that has come to us. And so he's answering this question that maybe arises in the minds of some. And the question is, if I could rephrase it, right? They're saying, if grace has abounded all the more where sin increased, then should we continue to sin so grace abounds even more, right? If grace has abounded where sin increased, then will I know better the grace of God if I keep on sinning? Right, a question like that is assuming that there's some sort of experience of blessing, an experience of grace that is to be received through sinning. And if you think about it, there's a certain kind of logic to this, right? Because grace is not grace if there's not sin, right? Grace is no good if you don't recognize you're a sinner. The message of the gospel of grace, why is it that people reject it? It's because they don't usually see there's a problem. What do I need grace for? I'm okay. Paul has posed a question like this before back in chapter 3 and verse 8, right? Some of his opponents there, uh, he posed the question for them, and why not do evil that good may come, as some people slanderously charge us with saying, right? In that chapter, Paul is, well, chapters 2 and 3, he's showing the Jews They thought they didn't come under the wrath and condemnation of God described in chapter one because, well, they were Jews, right? They thought their Jewishness, their law-keeping made them righteous. And so Paul comes along in chapter three and verse six and shows them their unrighteousness. So that leads to the question then, well, should we just continue to do evil? Of course not. Now, we read a question like the one posed in verse one, Should we continue in sin that grace may abound? And it should initially, I hope to all of us, seem kind of preposterous. It seems foolish. Why would you even bother to ask a question like that? Of course we know grace shouldn't lead to more sin. I asked the question, I said, why does he ask that question? Who's asking that question? Right? Who really thinks that doing what God has said not to do, which is sin, is the right response to grace? So a couple of thoughts came to mind. 
Because I don't know exactly the person that he is addressing, but we can, we can see a couple of things. Every one of us can quite easily have a very careless attitude towards sin and towards holiness because of grace. Can we not? At times in our lives, we can kind of just not really take seriously the sin in our lives because of, of grace. So in a way, we might have a Romans 6-1 attitude. We wouldn't state it so blatantly, but a lack of concern about personal sin and holiness, which we've been called to, may have this sort of mindset. A more uh, descriptive term of the Romans 6-1 person, and this is what everyone would agree this person is, if they are this to the fullest, would be a person we call an antinomian, right? Antinomian simply means against the law. Anti, against, nomos, law, right? Against the law. And antinomianism is something that the church has always battled and it's arised in different forms throughout church history and sometimes it's more blatant than others, but there's always this kind of Romans 6-1 attitude, right? That we can kind of continue in sin because there's grace. And in fact, grace continues to abound even more as we sin. A couple of ways that antinomianism can creep into churches, and I think we see this in our modern culture, is through shallow views of salvation. Right? We don't really understand what has happened in salvation, Right? When you view salvation simply as a get-out-of-hell-free card, right? just pray a prayer, and that's all you really need, and that's all you really need to be concerned about, that can lead to a form of antinomianism because there's a lack of understanding that, no, that justification, it will lead to sanctification. There is a change that is brought about by a person who has been truly born again. That's why we see these doctrines of Round salvation is absolutely critical to understand properly, right? We, we want to dot all of our T's and... No, we don't want to dot our T's. We want to <laughs> dot our I's, cross our T's when it comes to issues of salvation. Another form of antinomianism, and this was uh, quite a uh, hot topic a few years back, but the idea of a carnal Christian... You heard that phrase, that there's such a thing as a carnal Christian? The idea there is that a person can become a Christian, they profess faith in Christ, but they remain in a state of carnality for their entire lives, or at least until some point later in life where they make a decision, okay, now I'm going to follow the Lord. I've been a Christian, but I've been carnal, but then I'm going to have a decisive moment in my life where, oh, now I'm going to follow the Lord, right? This is a, I, I think in essence, what they're saying is that we can continue in sin because grace abounds. But let me tell you, the Bible knows nothing of a carnal Christian. You're a Christian or you're not a Christian. This is a, a form of antinomianism because it denies what the Bible teaches. Well, Jesus taught that if you love him, you will keep his commandments. Of course, we struggle with sin. I'm not denying that in any way. A Christian cannot remain in a state of carnality. May the third one, and I'll, I'll leave you with this, but the hyper-grace movement. Now, I don't know if we have a whole lot of interaction with the hyper-grace movement in our, in our church today, but there are teachers out there that maintain that because of the grace of God, we don't talk about sin. We don't talk about confession of sin, repentance. What we do each week when we 
read the law and we confess our sin, they'd be like, you can't do that. What about grace? You don't need to talk about sin, right? They, they, uh, this is a form, I would say, of antinomianism. Jude 4, Jude writes, and he warns about people like this, and he says, they pervert the grace of God into sensuality. That's antinomianism, right? Perverting the grace of God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. When you get grace wrong so that you say it continues, allows you to continue to leave, lead in your life in sin, you're denying Christ, right? Using the grace of God as an excuse to sin is a perversion of grace. Using the grace of God to deny parts of scripture like the commands, the warnings, the calls to confession, the calls to repentance, that is a perversion of grace. So to answer Paul's question, should we continue in sin that grace may abound? He answers it for us in verse two, by no means, by no means. So Paul here, he, he answers his question, not now with an explanation, but first just with a categorical denial. There is no way in the world that grace should lead us to sin. Really, it could, other translations translate it this way. God forbid, God forbid that grace would be an excuse for further sin. Or even more literally, let it not be. Let it never be that we would think that the grace of God given to us in Christ should lead to our indulging our vices indulging the passions of our flesh. Using the grace of God as an excuse for sin is like asking God to help you sin. We would never do that. So God forbid that we should continue in sin that grace may abound. Paul moves into the second half of verse two and he gives us an explanation. And here he wants us to understand that what grace has done to us is, and that is, that's what we need to understand, is that grace has done something to us, something so radical that it would make this idea of continuing in sin utterly preposterous. So he answers it in the second half of verse two. By no means, how can we who died to sin still live in it? So here he's answering this question, why grace should never be used as an excuse for sin. And very simply, it's this. Grace cannot be an excuse for sin because the grace of God has brought us into a new relationship towards sin where we are now dead to it. We are dead to sin. Now, being dead to sin does not mean that we have no feelings for sin any longer, like, ah, oh, I'm just not ever tempted to sin again. That's not what being dead to sin means. Right? It doesn't mean that it's not enticing or even that it's not enjoyable to a degree for a time. That's not what it means to be dead to sin. We all know this to be true experientially in our own lives that we still deal with sin and we're tempted by it and enticed and even enjoy it to a degree. And anyone who would tell you differently they're a liar and they're sinning right there. But because of grace, because we've died to sin, there should be, in the life of the Christian, a real discomfort with sin, right? A real, like, tension waging war in us. Look at a couple of verses ahead. 
Paul explains what dead to sin is in verse 6. We are no longer enslaved to sin. Or verse 14, sin will have no dominion over you. Or verse 17, you who once were slaves to sin. Right? Death to sin is death to the power of sin and the dominion of sin, its rule over our lives. Right? When Paul, and you'll see it especially as we we move on in the chapter, but he's going to use this illustration of master and slave to describe our relationship to sin and then our relationship to Christ. We were once ruled by sin under its dominion and its power, but now we're not. We have a new master that we serve, and it's Christ. So death to sin is death to the power and the dominion and the rule of sin over our lives. You know, I think a very practical application right here when we're dealing with an area of personal sin and perhaps it's an area of recurring sin, you keep struggling and falling in the same way over and over and over. We can sometimes feel I have to do this sin. We may not express that verbally, but that's what we feel. Like we can't stop. We need to consider Romans 6. We need to remind ourselves of this truth and we need to preach it to ourselves. No, I've died to that sin. I don't have to give myself to this in the same way anymore because I've died to it. Sin does not have to control me. According to Romans 6, those feelings of that I cannot not sin, they're not reality. So I bring my mind and my body in subjection to the truth and then as we see later on in verse 13, I do not give myself, I do not give my mind and my body to those things. So Paul is showing us that we have died to the power of sin. The grace that has been shown to us, chapter 5, verse 20, and all throughout the book, the grace that has been shown to us leads not to more sin in our lives, but to less. That's what he's, that's what he's proposing. Grace leads to less sin, not more. So, continue on in verse 3. We have died to sin now, but, but how is it? Why, why do I need to think of myself as dead? Why do I have this new relationship to sin? So Paul says, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? So how did you die to sin? Well, you were baptized into Christ. Paul is going to explain what it means that we've died. Notice, first of all, though, he's responding to the antinomian person in verse 1. Right? Should we continue in sin that grace may abound? Right? And he asserts they're ignorant. Right? Do you not know this truth about yourself? Right? Do you not know that you've been baptized into Christ Jesus and therefore you've been baptized into his death? You shouldn't continue in sin that grace may abound. Right? And there are, I, I, I've come up with three kinds of people that might be ignorant in this way, right? A new believer could be ignorant in this, right? They've just come to faith in Christ. They have very little knowledge of the scriptures, right? So they might be ignorant in this way. They need to be taught. They need to be taught what grace does. Or there could be a milky believer, right? This is the, the Corinthian believer. Paul addresses, you know, he says to the Corinthian church, I fed you with milk not solid spiritual food because you weren't ready for it, right? They could be ignorant about the grace of God and what it does to us. And so to that kind of believer who is 
not solid or not eating solid spiritual food, they need to hear a passage like Romans 6, 1 through 4, and they need to repent of their sin and they need to turn to Christ. Or there's the third option. It's just a false believer, right? Somebody, they've heard the message of grace, they've heard the gospel, and they have, sounds pretty good to them, right? This is a get out of hell free card, so they mentally assent with it, and then they just go on with their lives as if nothing has ever happened, right? They, they've never really been transformed by the gospel. So they need to repent of their sin, and they need to turn to Christ, so look at the second half of verse, verse three. Do you not know, there's some ignorance of some sort, all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. How have we died? When baptism into Christ, we've been baptized into his death and therefore have died to his sin, died to sin. Now Paul is using this image of baptism and he's not saying that the act of baptism whereby a person is dunked in the water is salvific in any way that's not how you die to sin right if he were to if he were now to come along and say okay be, be preaching baptismal regeneration which some churches do preach if he were be teaching that he would contradict everything he's taught in the in the first five chapters right we what is it that we know though it is true of a christian right through faith the moment our faith is in Jesus Christ, we are united to him. All of his righteousness is given to us. All of our sin is given to him or credited or placed upon him. So now, what Romans 5, 12 through 21 is saying, we are now represented in Christ. We have a new head and it is Christ, not Adam. We have been united to Christ and so we can be said to have been placed into Christ. And in baptism, that spiritual reality of having been placed into Christ is given a tangible picture, right? That's why we practice believer's baptism. We baptize only those who have professed faith in Christ, and then we dunk them in water, picturing their being buried and baptized into his death, and then raised to newness of life. We even say that when we baptize people. If baptism were a saving thing, you know, we all know, and many of you have probably experienced this, right? Especially children profess faith in Christ at a young age, they're baptized, and later on, they go to abandon the faith they once professed, right? Or some of us, you know, baptized as a child, and later on in life realize, I was never truly born again, and I need to be to be baptized again. So does the act of baptism itself confer anything upon somebody? No, but it simply takes place based on what has preceded it, namely faith in Christ and therefore our union with him. Paul makes this even more clear in Galatians chapter three, verses 26 through 27, where he says, for in Christ Jesus, you all are sons of God through faith. For as many as Many of you, as were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. In Galatians 3, Paul is saying that in Christ, you became a son of God through faith, not through baptism. So baptism now just corresponds to you having already, been put, to you having already put on Christ. So this being placed in Christ, this we would call it a spiritual immersion in Christ, is quite significant for what he stated in chapter 
6 verse 2 that you're dead to sin, right? There's a real significant connection here, okay? And it's this, since we've been placed into Christ by virtue of our union with him, everything that is true of Christ is now true of us. And so it can be rightly said of us that when Christ died, we died. Just as when Adam ate the fruit, we ate the fruit, right? Everything that is true of Christ is true of us. We've been placed into his death. Now, the importance of this is that throughout the Bible, sin and death are always linked, right? Even going back to the garden and the command that God gave when he said, do not eat the tree of the fruit for the day that you eat it, what will happen to you? You will surely die. Or look at verse 23 of chapter six, right? For the wages of sin is death, right? Sin and death are always linked. Sin leads to physical death and to ultimate death in terms of separation from God forever in judgment. So when Paul says that you've died with Christ, what he's saying is that Christ has taken the penalty for sin, Right? Christ has taken that, he has killed that thing, death, which was our due. So that's why it leads him to rejoice, right? In 1 Corinthians 15, when he says, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? It's gone because Christ died to sin and died the death's death. Look at verse 10 of chapter six. There Paul tells that, Christ's death to sin is a once-for-all death, right? He did it one time for all time for all of his people. So you don't have to die the death to death yourself. You can't. When you died with Christ, when you were baptized into his death, you died to sin's penalty, which is death. An eternal separation from God. It no longer has dominion over you. Sin no longer has dominion over you. So we are dead to sin and we consider ourselves dead to sin because we died with Christ when we were united to him by faith. But that leads to verse four. Because death to sin means nothing apart from the resurrection. So that's verse four. We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. You know, Paul makes this statement, we were buried. What is the significance of Jesus' burial? Being in the tomb three, three days? It shows that he truly died. He truly died as a human being. And so Paul, when he says that we were buried with Jesus, like he's concerned with showing that we truly died with Jesus as well. This is a completed death to sin. But if Christ had died and not risen, then our death with Christ means nothing, right? We're still spiritually dead. Death with Christ means nothing if Christ hasn't actually defeated death, which is the penalty for sin. So there's three crucial words in the middle of verse four. In order that... In order that we died and were buried in order that we might be raised from the dead just as Christ was raised from the dead. Many liberal scholars and non-Christians have denied or sought to deny the reality of the resurrection. 
the, the miraculous things in the Bible. They sought to deny that reality of the physical bodily resurrection of Jesus. It is one of the most crucial elements upon which all of Christianity hangs, right? You can believe that Jesus lived. Most people do believe that Jesus Christ of Nazareth was a real man. You could believe that he died and you could not be a Christian. But believing that Jesus died and that he rose, he died and rose for you, that has significant particular meaning for your life, right? If Jesus lives and dies and doesn't rise from the dead, his life is just a, a tragic story, right? A really good man who died an unjust death. It's tragic. But the resurrection is essential to the gospel, 1 Corinthians 15, right? A whole chapter dedicated to the necessity of the resurrection and the necessity of it for what we believe. Paul writes, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins, right? We'd still be dead. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished, right? He's saying, if Christ is not raised, there's no hope for the future for you. Those who are dead already, they're already in hell. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. Paul's argument in Romans 6, that we have died with Christ means nothing if Christ has not been raised. And then the practical application of this is that our being raised with Christ has massive implications for us now and how we think about and how we relate to and battle against sin. Right? And this is really where chapter 6 started, verse 1, that question. Should we continue in sin that grace may abound? Grace has set us free, Paul tells us, from the power and dominion of sin. Now you have a new power, a new master, and that comes through the resurrection of Christ. And we'll get to this more in just a moment. But notice, first of all, that our being raised from the dead is for a purpose, Walking in newness of life. There's a new way of living. Grace brings about a transformation. Not continual living in sin as if nothing has happened to you, but walking in newness of life. There's a transformation in our lives. This newness of life is contrasted with the life of sin, which is characterized by bondage and death and slavery, right? Sin and our Relate, our mastery by it has always given that, that imagery of the old man of death. Ephesians chapter four, Paul says that giving ourselves over to sensuality and every kind of impurity, he says, is not the way that we learn Christ. And he goes on to say this, assuming that you've heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. This is walking a new life. This is what we are raised from the dead to be and to do. Back in Romans 6, you notice that I skipped over a phrase and it's that we are raised from the dead by the glory of the Father. This is a key phrase. And this is important because this is what makes this message not a, you just got to go and you got to try harder, right? You can do it if you just pull up your bootstraps. 
We've been raised with Christ by the glory of the Father. We have experienced in the resurrection with Christ something that actually empowers us to live a new life, right? You don't have to continue in sin that grace may, or you don't have to continue in sin, right? Grace changes you. Ephesians chapter one, and and don't worry, I'm landing the plane. (laughs) Ephesians one, I think Paul helps us understand this better. Why don't you actually turn to it just quickly? Ephesians one, of course, begins with this wonderful uh, declaration of all the things that have happened to us in Christ. And then at the end of that, starting in verse 15, Paul begins to pray that we would know specific things about this salvation more clearly. So in verse 18, he says, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. So this is a prayer for a greater knowledge and a greater understanding of what we have received in Christ. You could say we understand grace more clearly. Then in verse 19, He wants us to know about a power that is in us and has happened to us by virtue of our union with Christ. So he says, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. What Paul wants us to see in Romans 6 and here in Ephesians One is that we have resurrection power working in us that enables us to walk in newness of life, right? That same power which raised Christ from the dead, raised you from spiritual death, and now lives inside you by the power of the Spirit, enabling you to walk in newness of life. Now we can look and we can see that Walking in obedience, walking in newness of life, not being enslaved to the same patterns of sin is actually doable, right? We can actually live in the joy and delight of obedience. We have a new power that animates us, right? Grace, we can now see, doesn't lead us to sin because we've been given something new, a new power, a new source of life that enables us to walk in newness of life. So we come to this passage and we're thinking about changing our minds about how we think about sin, right? We can understand now we have this right and corrected thinking that tells us we don't have to feel that sin has power and dominion over us, right? Paul has drawn a real contrast between verse one and verse four. The person in verse one thinks that grace gives them the freedom to live in sin. And in verse four, Paul's saying, no, you've been given freedom to live in newness of life. Living by grace is totally opposed to living in sin, to continuing that way. I'll wrap it up here. Do you you see now where the battle with sin very practically starts? It starts with how we think. It starts in the mind with thinking rightly about what is true of us, even when we don't feel it. We've got to re- preach to ourselves these truths and go to Ephesians 1 and pray like, Lord, increase my understanding and my knowledge of what has happened to me. Right? It starts with understanding our relationship to sin. that We're now dead to it. It starts with understanding that 
that saving grace, that justifying grace described in chapter five is also a sanctifying grace, right? We can't be careless and just like, oh, righteous living doesn't really matter because I'm saved by grace. No, that's not the way we respond at all. Saving grace is a sanctifying grace. And here's the good news. Grace is the only means by which sin can be defeated in our lives. All right, if, you, if you're a legalist by nature, if you come up in a legalistic background, you realize that legalism always places commands and requirements on us that are often outside of the scriptures, right? But the, the real issue with legalism is that it places commands and it doesn't give you the ability to obey them, right? It's, you gotta muster it up on your own to obey this, whereas grace is, here's the command and here's the ability. Here's the spirit of God indwelling you, enabling you to respond, In legalism, you're obeying to earn favor with God, not working from grace, but for favor. And that's always a losing proposition. Grace always obeys out of love and delight. If you're gonna be a licentious person, like Romans 6, 1, you're gonna be be a miserable miserable person because you're living contrary to the new life that you've received. There's always gonna be this disconnect in your life, Right? And license isn't going to work because it's not going to satisfy you. If, you've, if you're enslaved to sin or you've ever been enslaved to sin, which we all have, different patterns of behavior, have you ever found satisfaction in it? Has the alcoholic ever drunk enough? The sex addict ever had enough sex or looked at enough pornography? No, sin never satisfies. Grace causes us to feel sick over sin to feel that war and the incongruity of living in sin when we've been raised to newness of life. So that's why we often say, if you feel that battle within you, you feel like it's a fight, that's a sign of life because there's, you recognize this tension. I'm just gonna close with one passage and turn there with me. 2 Thessalonians chapter three. Paul wrote two letters to 2 Thessalonians and I've been reading through them I've been reading 2 Thessalonians. We <clears throat> read through the whole book every day. It takes me a long time because it's really short. First and 2 Thessalonians, I think, are Paul's most pastoral letters, right, in their tone, right, as he's describing his heart and his love for the Thessalo- Thessalonican church. And he closes 2 Thessalonians with an encouragement. And I think... Like, we, we've, we've seen, I hope you've seen in Romans 6 what grace does to us. You're reminded of the Spirit of God that empowers you to not live in sin, but to live from grace and to change your, your, your behavior. But he closes with this encouragement. And we, we need encouragement, don't we, as Christians, right? You think about a child. A child needs encouragement, like, to do the right thing, Right? A good parent wants to encourage their child and help them along. Or, a, a, you know, you think about an athlete on the field that's struggling to read the field right or make a shot or hit the golf ball. A good coach comes along and gives them the right kind of encouragement at the right time. And it's helpful, right? So a Christian, indwelt and empowered by the same spirit which raised God from the dead, raised us from spiritual death, yet we still struggle with sin, We struggle with doing the right things. We need encouragement as well. So Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3, verse 4, and we have confidence about you in the Lord, confidence in the Lord about you, 
that you are doing and will do the things that we command. You maybe phrase it this way, from a pastoral heart, I have confidence about you, Calvary Bible Church, that you are doing and will do the things that God's word commands because I know true things about you. I know what has happened to you and your spiritual life. So then you have this wonderful, warm closing. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. Oh Lord, we are so thankful for the great grace that you've shown to us. And may we never see that as a reason to continue to live in a way that doesn't please you. So we ask for your help in this. We are so thankful for the spirit who indwells us. And we're so thankful for now this ordinance that we get to partake of, the Lord's table, where as we eat the bread and we drink the cup, we are reminded of Christ and that we are united to him. That he, all, all that is true of him has become true of us. And so now minister to our hearts through this ordinance. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.